vaccines. Are they safe? How do you know? Hi, this is Dr. Mercola, helping you take control of your health. And to help us answer those questions is Neil Miller, who's written a number of books and has been in this field for three decades, a real pioneer in helping us understand the concerns about vaccine safety. So welcome and thank you for joining us today, Neil. Thank you, Dr. Mercola. I appreciate it. Well, uh, I've known of your work for a long time, but uh, we're go- your most recent work uh, is uh, just magnificent, and it really is a-, a great book that people can pick up if they're interested in referring to the studies, the stuck, documented, peer-reviewed, published studies that support the concern about vaccine safety and their efficacy. Now, this is not a comprehensive book. In other words, it doesn't review studies that support vaccination because there's loads of studies that do that, almost all of them funded by the industry and the government. So uh, with that picture, you've been in this field for a long time. And what I'd like to focus on is tell us how you got involved with it, what's your perspective, and uh, there is so much information in this book and that you've acquired over three decades. We could literally speak for the next eight hours and not skip a beat. But I want you to really focus on what you believe are the highlights and the concerns, give people the golden nuggets they need to defend their position with relatives, family, and friends against the onslaught of authorities, the media, the public health figures, and physicians who are just in, uh, rooted in the belief that vaccines are the best preventive strategy ever. Yeah, well, I got started when my own children were born, and uh, this was over 30 years ago. And, uh, well, my daughter's 29 now, but my son is over 30. And when they were born, I felt I had to do due diligence. Actually, when my wife was pregnant, I had to do my due diligence about vaccines. I have to be honest, though, before I even started to research vaccines, my wife and I pretty much knew intuitively that we were not going to inject our children with vaccines. We, when I give it, when I give lectures, I often, I often tell people, how can you expect to achieve health by injecting healthy children with toxic substances? And I intuitively knew that when when my wife was pregnant, but I still felt an obligation to do, do, do my due diligence and to do the research at the time. Well, well let, let me stop, stop you there and commend you for the courage to implement that, especially 30 years ago. Now it still takes courage, but you did it 30 years ago. And that's so exemplary. I mean, that's what I believe every parent has the responsibility of their child to do, to do their due diligence, because the, the, the children are relying on their parents to make the decision. Obviously, they can't. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, uh, back then, we, we had home births. Both of my children were born at home. I was the first one to introduce them to the world uh, when, they, when they entered the world. And uh, that was beautiful. And, you know, we, we, we knew to, to, you know, we didn't do uh, circumcisions, you know, and I'm Jewish. So, and it wasn't even an issue, um, to have to have to do that. It just didn't make sense to have to butcher my son, uh, unnaturally when he came out so naturally. Uh, so, so we, we, my wife and I, it is kind of amazing that the two of us were so much on, on the same wavelength with, with everything. My wife breastfed our children for two years. Our children never went to a medical doctor. You know, the first time my daughter went to a medical doctor was when she was 16 and she she uh, she had an accident on her ear and she tore her tore her ear and she needed stitches. And even then I was hesitant to have to to deal with it. I wanted to see if we could really you know deal with it at home. But they forced uh, her to get a tetanus shot. Well, no, they didn't. But the funny thing about it, when, when we did take her in and she did need the stitches, um, they, they, they tried to to give her a thermometer and she had no idea what it was and they kept poking her in the mouth. She didn't know she was supposed to open her mouth and put it under her tongue. But uh, so we, we still laugh about that today. But uh, but the thing is, is I do, I do when I when I do things, I do them pretty thoroughly. So so when I did my due diligence doing the research at the time, we didn't have the Internet. So I had to go to mm-hmm. medical uh, uh, libraries. And I was doing my research at medical libraries and I was gathering everything and I started to put it together and collate it and coordinate it and everything else. 
And people started to find out about the, the information that I had organized. And so they were asking me, you know, about vaccines, even, even way back then. And so I organized it into a booklet and I started to share that with people. And everything snowballed from that, from, from, from my first booklet. My first book was Vaccines, Are They Really Safe and Effective? And then we went on to, to some other books that, from there that went on to Vaccine Safety Manual. And now last year, in 2016, my latest book came out, which is Miller's Review of Critical Vaccine Studies. And in that book, uh, I, uh, I got tired of hearing medical doctors tell parents that there are there are no studies that that show that vaccines are unsafe or ineffective, and we hear this often. That med- you know, parents are come to me all the time, and they say, "My doctor told me that vaccines are safe, and there's no studies that that prove this." And I've been doing the research for literally. 30 years. And I know of so many studies, literally thousands of studies that document and my books all document the studies. And so I said, you know what, I've, I've got an idea for my next book. It's going to be unique. I'm going to take, I'm going to take 400 studies and I'm going to look at each study and I'm going to go through it and I'm going to summarize it in bullet points. I'm going to add a direct quote from the study and I'm going to give a headline on what the a summary of the study itself. And I'm also going to give the citation so people can go directly to the study and read it themselves if they don't want to rely on my bullet point s- summaries of the studies. And so my, my latest book, Miller's Review of Critical Vaccine Studies, is 400 studies, one study per page that just looks at studies that have found, and these are studies in peer-reviewed journals, these are studies in peer-reviewed medical journals that are, are documented and, and indexed by the National Library of Medicine. These are valid studies by valid researchers in, in many journals that people have heard about, the Lancet, New England Journal of Medicine, all the, the mainstream journals. And, and some of the smaller journals, but there's they're still valid peer-reviewed studies that show that there are problems with vaccines. There are safety problems, there are efficacy problems, and they're all in one place so that people, like doctors, can, can, can get this information all in one convenient place. And today, I've seen that this book has been very effective with medical doctors, when medical doctors who are on the fence or who are even opposed to vaccines get this, get this book and read it, I, I hear back from parents that their doctor is no longer pressuring them to get the vaccines. Their doctor is now respecting their decisions to not vaccinate or to go to some sort of alternative vaccine schedule if that's the choice that these parents make. Now, I'm not opposed to parents making their own decisions about vaccines, okay? I did not vaccinate my own children, and that was a, an appropriate decision for my wife and I, for our family. But my, my, there's two things that I represent when I go out and I give lectures and I speak to parents and I speak to uh, other researchers. I, I am all about having access to all of the available information, uncensored, unfettered access to all of the available information out there about vaccines, not just what your medical doctor wants you to know, not just what the pharmaceutical companies want you to know, and not just what the CDC is telling doctors uh, to share with their patients. Uh, I want parents and everyone to have access to all available information, and I want them to be free, absolutely free, to, 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 to make a decision whether or not they want to vaccinate their children so they, they can accept or reject vaccines for their own children. So it's really a human rights issue. It's really about the, uh, the mandatory aspect of vaccines. Mm-hmm. I think that all vaccines are problematic. And I think, think, I think this not just based on my own feelings, but based on the evidence that I've researched over the years. And I think the key there. <clears throat> Um, because obviously every parent ultimately is going to make some decision about whether or not to vaccinate. Most of the time, it is an uninformed decision. I think that's the key that we need to insert here. It's that it's an informed decision based on uh, an analysis 
you know, however deep they want to dive into it, because they could go really deep, obviously, if you have for the last 30 years, and then make come to a conclusion. And if they come to the conclusion it's safe and they want to do it, that's that's their that's they should have that right, just as anyone who wants to smoke or drink and you know it's legal to do. There's no I mean, obviously it's Absolutely. encouraged by public health authorities. So one of your and some of your earlier books, I'd like to just paint some broad strokes now. One of your primary arguments about the effectiveness of vaccines. Uh, and you showed this really clearly in many graphs, which uh, illustrated it pretty powerfully, is that there was a, a deliberate confusion by the public health authorities to uh, make the public believe that the vaccines were far more effective than they were. So they would use data to show that the incidence of the, the disease they were vaccinated against had dropped dramatically since the introduction of vaccines. But what they failed to do is extend the graph further before the vaccines and it had already gone down by 90% or more in some cases. So absolutely, could you, could you elaborate on that? Because I think that's a central core. And then go into some of the, the other items that you've discussed in your book. Well, a lot of people don't realize that when a new disease enters a virgin population, and by virgin population, I'm talking about People that have not, or a population that has not been exposed to the disease. Now, measles has been uh, problematic in third world nations, mostly because of malnutrition and that the people that are there, they don't have clean water and clean sanitation and access to quick access to medical care. Also, that's soluble vitamins like vitamin A. Vitamin A is very significant. The World Health Organization has sponsored some studies that have shown, have confirmed that children that are given high doses of vitamin A supplementation will not, um, you, you can't stop measles, okay? It's a very contagious disease. It's very transmissible. But if you get, if you have high storages of vitamin A, high nutritional status, it will protect you against complications and death associated with the disease. So that's very important. Now, by the time that the measles vaccine was introduced into the United States in, the, in, the, in 1963, by the late 1950s, the, uh, the death rate, the mortality rate from measles had drastically dropped. And this was due to uh, the, 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 the population has gained a, a, a protection against the, the, the more dangerous ravages of the disease. And this happens with a lot of different diseases. So in my, in my books, I've got many, many charts, many, many different types of graphs and illustrations to help the reader understand the main points that I'm making. And I, I often get, you know, every, every few weeks, somebody from around the world contacts me and asks permission to reprint these, these, these graphs or to use them in lectures that they're giving somewhere. Um, uh, um, but many of these graphs do show that these, vac that these diseases were, were declining significantly on their own well before these vaccines were introduced. For example, scarlet fever. Where did scarlet fever go? Why don't we see cases of scarlet fever when we didn't have mass vaccinations with a scarlet fever vaccine? Um, and so that's, that's an important point to be made. But other points that I think are significant is that in my, in my, in my book, for example, in, in this book here, Miller's Review of Critical Vaccine Studies, I've got a chapter in there on natural infections and cancer, okay? Mm -hmm. There are dozens of studies that I summarize in this book that show that actually getting these diseases as a child is protective in later life against cancer, various types of cancer, all types of cancer, everything from melanoma to leukemia. When children contract chickenpox, when children contract measles, mumps, rubella, you gain protective benefits that protect you in later life against cancer. And several studies, multiple studies, have confirmed this time and again. They have shown, and, and these are really vaccinated against unvaccinated studies. These are studies where they've compared populations that had caught these diseases naturally versus populations that never got these diseases. And they look at the, at the cancer rates in later life. The, also, 
Well, it's let me stop imp- there because I think it's an important point. And my, I, I don't know that anyone in the studies have a, a question or a venture to guess or speculate on a mechanism, but it would seem to me that when you have a naturally acquired infection, you're really exercising your immune system quite profoundly and developing authentic immunity, lifelong immunity, which is radically different from the type of uh, artificial immunizations that are done through vaccinations, and, and which is not lifelong, rarely ever is, and has re- relatively decreasing antibodies and, and actually stimulates a different part of the immune system. So it probably would you know, could potentially increase your risk of cancer rather than decrease it. And, and we see that in many of these other vaccines like HPV vaccine. Well, when, you're, when you are vaccinated, you are prevented from gaining that lifelong natural uh, protection against cancer. And also I'll mention against well, what's, the heart me- disease. what's the mechanism there? Well, there, there, the, well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you about several other studies that, that confirm that the infections, okay, here's, they, they, they know that later born children, they've known this for years and several studies show this. I don't show these studies in my book, but I mention it in the, in the, um, in the introduction to the chapter on cancer and natural infections. Several studies have confirmed time and again that when later born children are actually more protected against cancer than firstborn children. And again, for the same reason, they are exposed to more infections. There's also numerous studies from around the world that confirm that when you put your children in daycare at an early age, and I, I, we, we didn't do that. My wife and I didn't use daycare. But if you put your children in daycare at an early age, those children are statistically significantly protected against various types of cancers in later life. And again, it's because when they're exposed to all the other children with the runny noses and the various infections, and that actually provides incredible benefits not only to protect against cancer, but there's a Japanese study that I I summarize in the book. And in the Japanese study, they looked at over 100,000 men and women of elderly age. And they looked back at their history of catching these common childhood illnesses. Did they catch chickenpox, rubella, measles, and mumps. And what they found was it's actually protective against heart disease so that you're protected against heart attacks and various types of atherosclerotic disease of the the artery systems. So it's protecting the artery arterial system so that you are protected not only when you catch these diseases from, from cancers, but from heart disease and uh, heart attacks and strokes as well. Yes, uh, well, thank you for pointing it out. But we know that infections are not the only contributing factor. And in fact, the studies you quote, my guess is they were done many decades ago. So the quality of the food that they were eating was probably higher than we're getting in contemporary culture. And that my concern is that if you did, did the similar study today and and many of the daycares that are using highly processed foods with adulterated vegetable oils, highly refined carbohydrates and foods that are designed to decimate their immune system, that they may not get the same benefits. So it's a collaboration between really a healthy diet as we understand it. And that I discuss frequently on my side. I think that's, I think that's important. Yeah. yeah. Cause that's the, cause it, you know, that's to me, I mean, it's just, it's just, uh, exposing yourself to ancestral practices, which include sunlight and vitamin D and infrared and near infrared radiation and sleep in the dark, not exposed to uh, electromagnetic frequencies that were never designed to be exposed, avoid vaccines, you know, that didn't exist before 200 years ago. And, you know, all these things, if you, if you optimize them in clean water and good food, you're not going to get sick. You, you, those, It's the exact opposite. Exposure to these infectious insults actually improves your health. It doesn't decrease it. So it's such a different different concept on this. Go ahead. Expand on the different theories. No, there's different theories on why that takes place. Um, But the important thing is that study after study confirms that it takes place. 
Um, but there's other 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 aspects of of vaccines that a lot of people don't realize. For example, something else that's very important is that with the pertussis vaccine, mm -hmm. people are getting the DTAP, and they don't realize that. The vaccine itself has caused the, the pertussis microorganism, uh, Bordetella pertussis, to actually mutate. And it's evaded the, the vaccine itself. And here's what happens with many vaccines. This has happened with the pneumococcal vaccine. This has happened with the Haemophilus influenzae yeah. type B vaccine. Regular influenza vaccine. That's why they have to change it every year. Well, exactly, exactly. But they're finding, they're finding, for example, when you've got a, a vaccine that targets only certain strains of a disease where multiple strains are actually causing the disease, mm -hmm. the vaccine is actually pretty effective at reducing the incidence of disease from that particular strain. But what happens is the other strains come and take their place. It's like I, I liken it to gangs, you know, let's say gangs in a, you know, bad part of a bad neighborhood. And, that you know, some of the gang members, you know, imagine a gang member gets beat up by a stronger gang. And, well, he, the gang member goes crawling with his tail between his legs back to his 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 gang and they all they all get their get their weapons and get their get get ready to fight and come back and they're going to they're going to come back even stronger and the same thing tends to happen with the ecology of microorganisms okay when you target and what that's what they did for example with prevnar prevnar was a vaccine for for pneumococcus pneumococcal mm -hmm. disease all infants all infants that receive vaccines according to the to the cdc's uh standard immunization schedule receive a pneumococcal vaccine at two four and six months of age and that vaccine only targeted seven strains. Pneumococcal has 90 different strains that are capable of causing pneumococcal disease. Well, they were pretty effective at reducing the amount of disease caused by the pneumococcal uh, strains targeted by the vaccine. But what happened within just a few short years, the other strains became more prevalent and not just more prevalent and took the place of the original strains, they became more virulent, okay? So they came out with a new vaccine in 2010, the new vaccine, the, the, the Prevnar came out in, two, I believe, two th the year 2000. They came out with the new vaccine, the upgraded one in 2010, to deal with the vaccine was losing its efficacy because of what I just explained. And then within two years of the new vaccine, the new vaccine included the original seven strains, okay, plus six additional strains, the ones that were causing the new, the, the, the most of the pneumococcal disease now. Within two years of the new upgraded, updated pneumococcal vaccine, it, the, the, the strains had already mutated and there were new strains taking their place. It's really an arms race, really. It's just, it's just a shell game where, where, where you know, so, but with, new, with, with the pertussis vaccine, the thing that's very important to know is that parents are being blamed. Parents are being told, if you don't vaccinate your kids, you are being responsible for spreading the disease. That's what the, the CDC and the medical industry and the pharmaceutical industry are promoting. But if you actually go and read the studies, and I've summarized those studies, okay, in an entire chapter on pertussis mutations. And if you read the studies, you'll find in the peer-reviewed studies in the, in the medical journals, they know, all the scientists know that the real problem is evolutionary adaptation, okay? The microorganisms actually adapt so that when they're being targeted and when you keep fighting them and you keep, you keep attacking them, they adapt. And what's happened with pertussis, the pertussis microorganism has changed. And it's now not only, not only become more virulent, it's become more prevalent and it's evaded the actual vaccine. So the vaccine is not only is ineffective because it actually loses efficacy after a couple of years. So that when you give a vaccine, the reason, this is the reason they're giving so many booster shots to children, I, 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 kind of, I kind of joke that I tell people, I said, what's the answer to an ineffective vaccine? 
Well, the medical industry's answer to an ineffective vaccine is to keep giving more of it. Okay. And that's what booster shots are because the vaccine loses its efficacy. Yeah, I think you do a really great job of summarizing your book where you say that imperfect vaccines have non-intuitive consequences and that they induce targeted pathogens to adapt and evolve in unintended ways, creating undesirable disease outcomes in individuals and entire host populations. So in one of those things, uh, you know, another central core tenant of conventional medicine is herd immunity. And you discuss that in the book. Uh, and uh, you, you believe, and as I, I agree with you, this belief is that it may never be achieved because high vaccination rates encourage the evolution of more severe disease-causing organs, exactly. which is sort of a tangent to this. So if you wanted to expand on that, that would be good. Well, it's not just that. That's one aspect of it, okay? Because high vaccination rates absolutely, um, and, and there's several studies that have, pro- have shown this, but there's also theoretical studies where they've used mathematical models, and they show that it's impossible to achieve herd immunity with high vaccination rates. Here's what happens, okay? Imagine, imagine that you, as a human being, you and me and all of us, we're, we're a host, okay? The, the, the microorganisms live within side of us, okay? And so you're, now, let's imagine two populations, an unvaccinated population and a vaccinated population. Now, when you look at a, at a germ, any type of a germ wants to survive, any type of microorganism or a pathogen, it has the same imperative to exist that we do. The, the biological imperative inclination to survive, okay? And when you target a, va- a certain microorganism, it actually becomes stronger. And a microorganism doesn't want to kill its host. Ebola out in Africa is not a very intelligent uh, pathogen. And the reason being is because it's too effective at killing its host. So it doesn't have enough time to transmit it to other hosts, you see. So a very wise pathogen is one that's able to infect a lot of, 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 of the humans that it lives within without actually killing them. Okay, because when it kills you, it loses its own environment within which it exists. Okay, so what happens though is that when you have a vaccinated population, the microorganism in there is is learning to adapt and become more virulent because it it has what's called selective pressure. This goes back to Darwinian principles of evolution, and so. Within the vaccinated population, the strains actually become stronger because they have to overcome the strength of the vaccine that's trying to do them in. In the unvaccinated population, you're actually developing, and the the, the unvaccinated population is creating an environment in which the disease becomes less virulent because it doesn't want to to overtake and kill its host. So, but what happens is once you once the once the 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 the, the disease organism mutates and becomes more virulent, it now skips from from vaccinated to vaccinated person and also to the unvaccinated population, and now you have a problem everywhere because they've created a mutated version. And this is taking place with, in the, in the, with pertussis. This is taking place with, like I said, with pneumococcal and Hib. And it's also seems there's evidence that it's taking place with the human papillomavirus, the HPV vaccine, because that also has different strains. But in terms of herd immunity that we were discussing, you not only have the problem that I've just described, where there, you're always going to have this selective pressure that's keeping you from being able to achieve herd immunity because the, the microorganisms are always attempting to evade the vaccine. But pertussis vaccine is only 60% effective. That's, that's with the best estimates, and that's only for a couple of years. Okay, the studies show that even after three, four, five years, you're back to almost no efficacy whatsoever, almost back to, to the pre-vaccine times, pre-vaccine period. So you, how can you expect to achieve 
herd immunity with a vaccine that is only 60% effective. You can vaccinate 100% of the population and you cannot achieve herd immunity with a vaccine that is only 60% effective. And, and even you go back to influenza vaccines, many years, these vaccines are not good matches for the circulating virus. Okay, so you have 0% efficacy. And in the best years, you only have 30, 40, 50% efficacy. We, we can spend a whole hour just on influenza vaccines for sure. But what I want to do is hit some of the central cores and, and, st- and, and really diverge from the mechanisms that we've been discussing. But So one of the tenants is that if you vaccinate a population, they're going to be healthier. They're going to have less disease. It's going to improve the health of the population because that's why they're recommending and encouraging and, and, and advising that people get these on a regular basis. But when you look at this, and I, it, it just boggles my mind to seek to comprehend why this is not more widely appreciated, but the studies have been done. They've compared large numbers of individuals, tens of thousands of individuals who are vaccinated versus those who are non-vaccinated, and they look at the results. And you and I think this is some of the most compelling information in your book. And they said they and when they do this, and you can expand on this, you know, one of them, they found a significant 34 developed nations, they found a significant correlation between infant mortality rates and the number of vaccine doses received. Developed nations like the United States that require the most vaccines tend to have the worst. That's the worst infant mortality. They're killing kids with these vaccines is is the essential only rational conclusion you can get from the study. That that's actually I'm the lead author on that study, actually. And and I did that study. uh, My co-author was Dr. Gary Goldman and Mm -hmm. Dr. Gary Goldman worked for the CDC for seven years. And, And he quit until when when he found that the CDC was was not allowing anything detrimental. Dr. Gary Goldman found problems with the chickenpox vaccine, and he went to publish that data. And the CDC said, we're not going to allow you to do that. And that's when Gary Goldman quit. But at any rate, I did a couple of studies. Dr. Gary Goldman and I did two uh, peer-reviewed studies that were published in uh, medical journals, Human and Experimental Toxicology. One of those studies was this study that you just described. And so I was thinking, you know what? The United States requires 26 vaccine doses for infants. Now, an infant is is this, <laughs> an infant. There, there's a legal definition. There's a medical definition for an infant, and that is any child up to 12 months of age. Okay, and there's a de- medical definition for infant mortality rate. Okay, infant more infant mortality is the number of deaths per. The infant mortality rate is the number of deaths in a nation per 1,000 live births, okay? So now, the United States offers the most, children in the United States are required, if they follow the CDC's immunization schedule, to receive the most vaccines in the developed world, actually in, in, throughout the world, okay? Globally, 26 vaccines. Other nations, other developed nations require less. Some nations only require 12 vaccines. Switzerland, Sweden, okay, Iceland, and other European nations. And yet they have better infant mortality rates. So that's what our study looked at. I wanted to look and see is since vaccines are promoted as being life-saving, mm-hmm. they're given to children to protect them against dying from infectious diseases. So we, we gathered all the immunization schedules from the 34 nations, the United States and the 33 nations that had better infant mortality rates. The United States had the 34th best or 34th worst infant mortality the rate. Worst. Nations. And all the countries you looked at, the worst. Yes, exactly. It had the worst. Uh, 33 nations in the developed world had better infant mortality rates. So we did a study and we found what what many people would find to be a counterintuitive relationship. (laughs) Unless you understand reality. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly what you would predict. Yes. 
And exactly that's what we found. We found a statistically significant relationship. There was a direct correlation between the number of vaccines that a nation required for their infants and the infant mortality rate. The more, more vaccines that a nation required, the worse the, worst the infant mortality rate. So that's a study. People can go up on my website. They can read that study. And your you website can, is? A direct, oh, yeah. thinktwice.com. All one word, no hyphens. Just think twice. Okay. Think twice. Thinktwice.com. Now, there's another study that I want to talk about that I also did uh, with Dr. Goldman. Mm -hmm. And this is a very important but study. Before you discuss this, though, I think it's, congratulations on doing that. It, for some reason, it didn't, in my notes, it didn't connect your, you were the author of the study. But uh, why, you know, my, the, my immediate reaction to this, I mean, this is, as I said, it was really one of the most compelling studies of the 400 that you put in your book. Why is this not widely recognized? Why isn't this like front page news and all the, and all the media? Come on, you're being too rational now. <laughs> this, we're not dealing with rationality. And I tell people, I'll tell you something that I tell people that they don't like to hear. And I'm talking about people in my own community, people that are, are doing the work that I'm doing, trying to educate parents and trying to educate researchers and give them more strength to go out and to know that what they're doing is right when they educate others about the problems with vaccines so that they can make informed decisions about their for, for their children and their families. Um, I'm working on a 50 to 100 year time frame. A lot of people come along and they think that, you know, I've seen new people come along and they contact me, Mr. Miller, how can I help with this cause? I've recognized that there's a problem with vaccines and I want to I want to contribute. I want to help. I want to donate my time and 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 whatever it takes to, to get this message out. And they think that this is going to be ended in 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 five years, in, sometimes in in five, you know, two years, three years. They think we can stop the madness. But no. No, you're not going to stop the madness. There's 275 vaccines that are currently in the pipeline. These are under development right now. And so the machinery, the mechanism through which vaccines are going to keep being churned out is there. And I know this is distressing to, to many people that are doing what I'm doing to try to help people to think about this. I don't foresee change within that system for some time. Now, that doesn't and, mean we. And I think this is a, a, a large part of a result of the collusion between government, the federal regulatory agencies, the governments, and the industry. I mean, when you have individuals like Janet Gerberding, who is the head of the CDC in charge of infectious disease recommendations in, in public health for seven years, I believe. And then when she quit, she turned around as the president of Merck Vaccines, which is one of the largest vaccine manufacturers in the world. I mean, and this is one isolated case. There are dozens, probably hundreds of other examples oh, it's, of it's, this revolving door. It's, a, it's an absolute revolving door. The, the pharmaceutical industry and the medical industry are in bed with each other. We have a serious problem where top scientists in the country admit that they drop data points from studies or that they've been influenced by, by the people that are funding their studies to to sometimes not publish a study because it didn't come up with the results that they wanted, et cetera, et cetera. So, yes, we have a serious problem with uh, with the with with the pharmaceutical industry controlling which studies get published. And also there's a serious problem because the pharmaceutical companies are controlling the advertising dollars that go out to the major media mainstream media. Mainstream media makes approximately 70% of their income from pharmaceutical ads. And the they do not want to publish or promote anything, even in their newscasts, that would be critical of vaccines because it could compromise their potential to keep bringing in these high dollars, these millions of dollars that they make every year annually from from the pharmaceutical companies. So there's huge problems. But the other thing to do, I've always been uh, amazed at how they can get away with this is, especially for flu vaccines. I mean, you basically go into almost any pharmacy, any airport, most grocery stores, and when flu seasons come around, you're gonna be able to get those 
I mean, there's, there's big ads up for them. I mean, what other industry is able to get away with this type of propaganda? Yeah, it's a drive drive by shots, drive by shots. I've seen them, you know, at the, at the pharmacies now, and and they're trying to give shots at the school systems by school nurses, and and th- so there's a huge problem. Absolutely, there's a huge problem right now. The main the main problem right now is the push to mandate the vaccines. There's a push by the pharmaceutical industry and by the CDC. It's a it's a it's a very uh, organized effort to go state by state and to pick off the the exemptions that people have. You see, states allow the children to go to public school without vaccines if they sign various types of exemptions, whether it's a religious exemption or a philosophical exemption. Medical exemptions are virtually worthless, okay? Although I do know some doctors are are able to write some nice medical exemptions based on some, some potential problems that you could have if you get those vaccines. But this is a, the, me, the medical industry and the pharmaceutical companies are trying to influence the legislators state by state to withdraw the exemptions that are allowed to go to school. And they did this in California. Now in California, to go to school, you, you, you have to get the vaccines. You no longer can sign a philosophical exemption and you can no longer sign a religious exemption. So this is a serious problem. It's a human rights issue. And so we have to educate the legislators. Mm-hmm. We have to educate the medical doctors and we have to stop this onslaught. Yeah. Uh, so d- despite and the fact- One of the ways we do that is, you know, we work with Barbara Lowe Fisher, the the founder, co-founder of the National Vaccine Information Center in BIC, and they've established this vaccine portal. And although they did lose that philosophical exempt and medical exemption in California, uh, there were a number of other states, I think well over 10, maybe even 20 states that they attempted to implement the same restrictions. And thanks largely to the NVIC portal and their ability to communicate with locals in that state, we're able to, in fact, give an outrage to the legislatures and they were not passed. Those changes were not passed. So we can, by sticking to the guns, make a difference and not just throw up our hands and say, well, it's going to be like California. It's not inevitable. We can make a difference. Absolutely. And that's the point I wanted to make. Even though I am not optimistic about changing the mechanisms through Mm -hmm. which the pharmaceutical companies are controlling things, regarding vaccines and regarding the types of healthcare that, that we, we have access to and things like that. Um, I think there are very real things we can do to protect ourselves, to protect our rights and to, to move forward, making s- sort of incremental changes until we can make the major shift over until everyone is absolutely free from this medical tyranny this medical oppression that we're all under right now so that we can do freely all the things that you promote for natural health, all the, the types of foods that we want to eat and not have to ha- worry about whether they're being cut down and restricted and whether or not we want vitamins and how many times have we had the fight that, they've, that the legislators have tried to take away our rights just to go and, and get, get the, the vitamins that we want. So, so there, there is reason to be optimistic. Well, let's go back to that other study that you had that was, uh, maybe it was the one you published also that analyzed nearly 40,000 reports of infants who had had adverse reactions after vaccines. And it showed that the the infants who had the most vaccines were significantly more likely to be hospitalized or die when compared to infants who never received vaccines. So that was a separate study that you published? Yes. So this is the second study that uh, I co-authored with Dr. Gary Goldman. And in this study, what we did is we we accessed the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System database. So just in summary, quickly, I just want to mention that when you buy a vaccine for your child, when you go to the doctor's office and buy a vaccine, a portion of the money that goes into that vaccine actually goes into a congressional fund. Congress in 1986 established a congressional fund to compensate parents when their children are damaged or killed by vaccines. To date, as of as of this state today, when we speak, more than 3.6 billion 
that's with a capital B, $3.6 billion has already been paid out to parents to compensate them for their children that have been permanently damaged or killed after receiving mandated vaccines. Now, but, but do you know what the real tragedy of that number is? Most, it's, it's, it literally should be 10 to probably 100 times more because almost all the cases are thrown out. For, for absolutely, absolutely, for, and not just that, but it's but theirs, right? But not just that, but the vaccine adverse event reporting system, theirs mm -hmm. is a passive reporting system, okay? Mm -hmm. And 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 I have a study in my vaccine safety manual that was the, the book that I had written before this, my, my most recent book. In that book, I document. I document a study that actually came from a pharmaceutical company. It was a it was an internal study that they did to look at passive reporting systems. And a passive reporting system underreports according to the pharmaceutical company's own internal investigation underreports by 50 50 to 1. So that when you see a report in the vaccine adverse event reporting system that for some child that's been hurt or killed from a vaccine, you have to multiply that by 50 to get something that's closer to reality, okay? Especially when parents aren't even warned about the vaccine adverse event reporting system, and they're not warned to and look for various types of, of conditions after they receive a vaccine. They don't even acknowledge it's a possibility, most of them. Right, but they have a legal obligation to report to, vac to the vaccine adverse event reporting system, but they don't do it. Night, well over 95% fail to do it. Exactly. But now I want to mention the study with, with that as a backdrop to, to the study, okay, with this database. Um, the database today has over 500,000 reports of adverse reactions to vaccines, okay? When you, when you take your child for, for a vaccine and, you, and that child's been hurt by that vaccine, the doctor is obligated by law to report that re reaction, but even though most doctors won't do it. Now, parents can also make a report, okay, to the, to the, to the, uh, to, to the database. Every year, more than 30,000 new reports are added to the database. So Dr. Gary Goldman and I decided we were going to download. We got access to the database. We downloaded it. And then what we did is we created a program that was able to extract um, we extract all the infants that, that were in there. So we took out 38,000 infants that had received vaccines and had an adverse reaction. And then with those 38,000, we, we, we created a program that, the, that was able to determine did those children receive two vaccines before they had an adverse reaction or did they receive three vaccines before they had an adverse reaction? Or did they receive four, five, six, seven, or eight vaccines, okay, before they had that adverse reaction? Because the industry, the CDC tells us, and Dr. Paul Offit tells us that you can take multiple vaccines. Dr. Paul Offit said you could theoretically take 10,000 vaccines at one time, okay, that an infant can be exposed to that many pathogens simultaneously, without hurting the child. And so the, the CDC's immunization schedule requires that children receive eight vaccines at two months of age, eight vaccines at four months of age, eight vaccines at six months of age. I ask parents, when did you ever take eight drugs at the same time? In your craziest college days, did you ever take eight drugs at the same time? And if you did take eight drugs at the same time, would you be more would you, would, you, would you think it was more likely that you would or would not have an adverse reaction? Because we know, the, we know toxicologists know that the more drugs that you take at the same time, the more potential for some kind of a, of a synergistic or additive toxicity. Now, so now we've got 38,000 infants that were re re reports of having had a, an adverse reaction after receiving vaccines. And now we, we stratified it by whether these infants received two vaccines, three vaccines, four vaccines, five, six, seven, or eight vaccines simultaneously before the reaction took place. And then we only wanted to look at whether they had serious adverse reactions. We didn't want to look at did these 38,000 children, the kids that had some kind of some 
pain at the injection site. We didn't want to look at, did they get a fever after they had a, an, a, an adverse reaction? We only wanted to look at, did they, were they hospitalized after they had that reaction or did they die? Okay, because these are considered serious adverse reactions. If a child has a reaction where he's taken to the hospital, there's something serious going on there. Okay, so now what we found was that children that received three vaccines were statistically significantly more likely to have been hospitalized or die after receiving their vaccines than children that received two vaccines at the same time. Children that received four vaccines simultaneously were statistically significantly more likely to be hospitalized or die than children that received three or two vaccines, all the way up to eight vaccines. Children that received eight vaccines simultaneously were off the charts, statistically significantly more likely to, to have been hospitalized or die after receiving those vaccines. So what this study proves, what this study confirms is that it's a dangerous practice to give multiple vaccines simultaneously, okay? The CDC has put together a, a schedule that was based on convenience. They say give, give eight vaccines at two months, give eight more vaccines at four months, give eight more booster shots at six months because it's convenient. They're afraid that parents will not come to the pediatrician again and again and again if they have to keep coming back for more vaccines. Now, so they lump them all together. And cost too. And cost. So they, they, they said, we're going to make this schedule based on convenience, not based on evidence, not based on science. There's nothing scientific about the CDC's immunization, recommended immunization schedule. And we've showed that. We've show, showed it with our study. Not only did we show that, but one other finding that, we, 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 that, that was significant in our study. We also showed that children that receive vaccines at an earlier age, are statistically significantly more likely to be hospitalized or die than children that receive it at a later age. So we divided it up to children that receive their vaccines in the first six months of age versus children that receive their vaccines in the, in the, in the last six months of infancy. And it, again, off the charts, statistically significant, it's much more dangerous to give infants, younger infants, uh, vac uh, multiple vaccines than to give uh, uh, older infants multiple vaccines. And this, this only makes sense because they're giving the same dose to a baby that might be six or seven pounds, a newborn, or some, a, a baby that might be eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 pounds at two months of age versus a child that's actually receiving, uh, that, that might be 15 pounds or se 17 pounds at a later age. Okay, well, thank you for sharing that. And I'd like to give you one final question. Uh, I think I know the answer to the first one. Actually, it's two. The question is, do you believe there's ever any indication from your perspective as a diligent parent who studied the literature for 30 years or more to ever give a vaccine? And then second after that would be, do you think it's theoretically possible to construct or develop a safe vaccine that's effect that's also effective because obviously it doesn't matter if it's safe it doesn't work well you know i'm in a uh, i'm in a forum mm -hmm. it's a it's a private forum mm -hmm. and it's got it we're, we're we're many medical doctors and scientists of the highest caliber and we discuss different types of issues surrounding vaccines and let me just say this you can't get into this forum if you want to green vaccines. This is a this is a a, a, a saying, a concept. Mm -hmm. There are many people that think that vaccines aren't the problem. It's just we need to make them safer. We right. need to that's green a, that's, them. That's okay. why I asked you the question. Exactly. Now, I I I have another study that I wrote on the problems with aluminum, and people can look that up. Oh, sure. It's a, it's a, 
It's a very yeah. important. Yeah, I'm sorry we didn't get to that, but you're right. That's probably, from my perspective, one of the worst ingredients in vaccines. It, it may be worse than it may be worse worse than the mercury. Yeah. The, I'm, the I'm mercury. convinced that it is too. Yeah. Yeah. I'm 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 actually convinced right now as well that that the aluminum is more significant than the mercury, and mm -hmm. and there's high contents of of aluminum in the vaccines, and we've got many many studies, and I document this in a, in a paper that I wrote on this. Okay, and and the title of the paper is Aluminum in Vaccines is Unsafe. And and th there's you know there are many studies show that it's it's it causes neurological and immunological damage. Okay, but having said that, and you're getting multiple hey, doses. Just, getting now, just hold your thought too, because I don't want to get people too discouraged. You've had children immunized already. Say, oh, what am I going to do? You can detox aluminum. There are strategies. Orthosilicic acid, uh, biosil is an example that can do that, and it's taken you know, with a binder can effectively detox it and remove it from your body. So don't one of the problems, the, one of the, one of the problems that the new research is finding is that nanoparticles of aluminum may be worse than larger particles oh, because sure. they can, they can Absolutely. pass the blood, they can pass the blood brain barrier and, and uh, cause significant long-term damage. Um, but, uh, but I, I definitely always want to leave parents with hope that there are researchers out there that can detox you from heavy metals mm -hmm. and can help you yeah, to there, regain. There are, there are effective strategies well beyond the scope of this interview, but just don't get discouraged. We will definitely going to yeah. be, I'm interviewing a detox expert in July that we should be on the program, maybe in September or so that we're going to. Very, very good point. But that being said, I, br I brought up aluminum because I wanted to, uh, well, wanted to point out that that's another problem with vaccines, but also because we're discussing. Uh, this idea of, of, do I believe there's any safe vaccine? Mm -hmm. um, do I believe that you can green vaccines? Now, let's, let's imagine that they took aluminum out of the vaccines. Let's imagine they took thimerosal out of vaccines. Thimerosal is still in multi-dose vials of, of, mm -hmm. of influenza vaccines yeah. given to infants. And it's also in vaccines that are given to women in utero, uh, given to the babies in utero, pregnant women. Okay, so pregnant women are getting... Mercury-laced influenza vaccines. They're also getting aluminum-laced uh, pertussis vaccines. So you're already assaulting the infant in utero, and then it gets it gets more of these assaults with these toxic this toxic cocktail of vaccines that it gets at two, four, and six months of age. So I, I don't. I personally, again, I'll go back to a statement I made earlier. I find it difficult. To, to understand how anyone can believe that you can achieve health by injecting healthy children with toxic substances. That being said, once again, I am a big proponent of freedom of choice. Mm -hmm. I'm a big pro proponent of informed consent. And if parents do their due diligence and they investigate vaccines and they still decide that they want to go ahead with the, the, the pharmaceutical and, and industry recommended uh, yeah, vaccines, they, that's their choice. Yeah, that they believe that benefits outweigh the risk. So uh, it sounds just like to summarize your position that you don't believe it's possible to create a green vaccine, a safe, I, effective vaccine. No, not not okay. the way that the current manufacturing process occurs. There's just too many okay. toxic substances. I, I thought that was the case, but I didn't want to put words in your mouth. So, yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah. listen, you've done a great uh, a great as as a pretty serious understatement uh, work and compile this information, presenting it in a format that's digestible, understandable, and easy to communicate. It's a resource that people can have. I think it's, it works great with NVIC, you know, it's educational information and NVIC has got the strategies to communicate to the public and, and their local communities. So to thwart this effort to uh, impose mandatory vaccinations. So uh, you've got your website, Think twice, one word, no hyphens, thinktwice.com, which is uh, where people can follow. You've got multiple books. You've been writing for three decades. <laughs> and I, I remember reading your books in my practice in the 80s. You know, it was just like, wow, I just, that, you know, and you come up with a new revision. I kind of regular basis, like every year you did a new revision of it. I update so, the books. Yeah, you've been doing it for a long time. And I just want to it's extend my deep gratitude for all the work you've been doing and, and efforts and literally the many lives you've impacted 
favorably by sharing your wisdom and your experience on this and let, giving people the tools to, to become informed. And that is the key, as we talked about earlier. It's everyone's going to make a choice. The key is to make an informed choice. And no one's going to, at least in our communities, no one's going to, to belittle you for believing that after you've made the informed choice that there's more benefit than risk. If you come to that conclusion, that's your right. But do your homework first. To, right. To, and to, don't try to force the vaccines on those of us that have elected not to vaccinate our children. Right. Because just as we, we, we feel you have the right to, to vaccinate, you should feel that we have the right not to vaccinate. That's right. So, because, you know, we've looked at the evidence and we've come to a different conclusion than you. So unfortunately, you know, the, the, those decisions are not catalyzed and and uh, facilitated by the massive propaganda campaign by the industry and the public health authorities. Uh, so it's it's a sort of a one-sided uh, uh, argument for the most part. Yeah. But uh, I really appreciate what you've done. I think everyone, if they're interested in this issue, needs to pick up a copy of your latest book because it's just loaded with, I mean, we just, uh, folks, we went into less than 5% of the book Less than 5%, probably closer to 2%. I mean, uh, there's no question we could talk about this for eight or 24 hours and not even re repeat any piece of information. There's so much information in there, and you've done such a spectacular job of summarizing it. So I want to thank you deeply thank for you. giving that. Thank you very much. I appreciate you giving me this opportunity. And I, I also want to extend a heartfelt thank you to you for all the work that you do. I really appreciate everything you do for the natural health community. Well, thanks. And, you know, I'm deeply moved with the vaccines and, you know, I'm still almost brought to tears to think about all the children that I vaccinated with. You move on and you move on and, and you, you live and you learn and you grow. And, and now you're, you're, you're doing so much great work. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you again. And uh, pick up a copy of this book. It's great.